0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today without my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. He is off living his own best life, and we are all just witnesses to it. He should be back next week. So this show is mostly going to be about... The far right. Not the far right as it actually exists in Ireland, but the far right as it's talked about in media. Because of the recent protests in Eastwall, which for those who aren't aware, there's, there have been protests in Eastwall for the last while about the moving in of uh, asylum seekers into a building in the area. This has been poorly received by most of the media, and there has been pretty consistent effort to present the people of Eastwall in a, should we say, rather particular fashion. So I wanted to talk about that and some of the things that have come up from that. Before we start off, actually, I did want to mention a couple of people reached out to me, uh, not over the last episode, the episode before that, where I mentioned some things about Antifa during World War II and uh, the kind of the general state of Germany before the Nazis came to power and that there had been kind of running street battles uh, between the communists, the Nazis and pretty much everyone else and they're asking could I uh, touch more on that. I'm not going to hear because we actually did a full episode, it could be two years ago at this point, on the history of Antifa or what would have been at that time anti fascist action and its birth from the German Communist Party. I'll put a link to that below and if you're interested in the actual history of Antifa or the first founding of Antifa really um, then that's probably something that you would be interested in and feel free to go with it. Now, now, onto Eastwall and on to the, uh, the reporting on it. One thing I wanted to touch on before we really get into it, I mean, because it's kind of background information that people wouldn't be aware of, kind of related to media tradecraft, you may have noticed that a lot of the media commentary on Eastwall is going to individual people. Oftentimes people not from the locality, not involved with the protests, or people from the locality, but of a very particular political viewpoint, who are also not involved with the protests. Gripped are, I think, the only people I've seen put up largely unedited video interviews with protesters, giving the protesters a chance to talk about why they're there and uh, and their, their feelings on the situation. And as the situation has kind of progressed, we've also given people a chance to talk about how they feel about how the event is being presented by media. A lot of people on the ground have been quite angry with how they've been presented, That the feeling that they are legitimately concerned for their community and they are being presented as being far right or racist or anything of this sort and they're saying, look, that's that's not true, we, we have legitimate concerns. And I suppose journalists, whether their outlets might say well it doesn't matter about their intentions we think these actions are racist regardless of what they say. Problem there is that racism is ultimately a crime of intention. So regardless of how much you think that people are committing racist actions, they don't do it with hate in their heart. It's kind of hard for it to be racist. Or maybe I'm just overly kind. But one of the the reasons for that, one of the reasons for that, I think, is because they want to get a particular answer. I think absolutely there's an element of that. But we've had situations where grift reporters have been on the ground in Eastwall. Reporters from other outlets have come up to our guys to ask them how they are able to get so many interviews because particularly now whatever it was like at the start of this particularly now a lot of the protesters a lot of the local people will not talk to the media because they don't trust them but they will talk to our guys that is the the core root of it when reporters come up to our guys and ask how they are getting interviews it's because our people are trusted or at least not actively distrusted which is what's happening with a lot of the um the other outlets i don't know uh and i, I should check this if the people who are having problem talking to people are most of the mainstream Press, or only the the likes of the you know, the more mainstream press, and the red tops, the tabloids are having an easier time of it. I would suspect that's probably the case because the tabloids are less ideological, but also they're they're more familiar to a lot of people in working class communities. Which is an it's just an interesting thing worth mentioning because there is absolutely an element here in the reporting on Eastwell that is caused entirely by the fact that these people cannot get local people to talk to them. And if you're sent down to Eastwell and you go down and you spend a couple of hours there, and no will talk to you you're gonna to have to find someone to say something and oftentimes that is someone you might know or someone recommended to you by another person in the uh, the newspaper you had an interesting example of this in the irish examiner recently although they were not down in east wall it was largely about east wall and it was an article titled how far right propaganda in ireland weaponizes legitimate social issues by a guy called neil michael uh, i actually have never heard of him but apparently he's been working for the examiner for two years or so but the interesting thing is he he has two primary sources in this article and what the article is is it's got a picture of Eastwall, and it opens by talking about the um the Christchurch mosque shooting well mosques i suppose and it has this very i would say kind of dishonest framing where it opens with a guy called joe carolyn who is a trade official in uh, new zealand at the time and it says that he had gone to the police about um death threats regarding mosques and it's kind of presented as if it as if he uh, as if the complaints about the Christchurch mosques but a closer reading of it makes it seem like it was just mosques in general and he is uh, he's talking about the the rise of the far right in Ireland and the second uh source they have in it is a guy called uh Pyrrhus McInry now Pierce McInry to the best of my knowledge is a communist I'm not entirely sure about that it's been actually been a while since I checked about the old communism but Pyrrhus is absolutely a member of the Far right observatory who people might remember is a an anonymous uh, group of activists and academics. I did, I did an article on them a while ago showing that they were actually taking in large amounts of state funding, even though they, they were anonymous and had no public-facing um, really material, because they were able to get into bed with Uplift, and Uplift were able to apply for the funding. I'll put a link down below in case people are interested in it. But the thing there is that the Far Right Observatory is not an unbiased source. It is a left-to-far-left to f- to left collective, filled with people whose political views are themselves out of the mainstream. So you have him, and then let's go back to Mr. Carolyn. The image they have chosen to represent Mr. Carolyn in this article is Mr. Carolyn with his fist in the air, wearing a hoodie that says anti-capitalist on it, in front of the grave of Karl Marx. Now, I'm not saying... Don't use communists as sources. But I am saying if you want to talk to people about, shall we say, political extremism, maybe the communists are not the best people. You might want to go with someone who's a bit more, you know, nicely centrist or, you know, left of centre, right of somewhere, somewhere there. But to give Joe Carolyn credit, he is actually from the East Wall and he gives his view on it. Again, though, it runs into this thing of here is a person not involved with the protests telling you what the local people feel. And he's from East Wall. But he'd moved away for quite a period of time, it seems, and is now back. But there's, there's no evidence given that Mr. Carolyn's views are representative of the residents of Eastwall more than the protests. But you, it's just, you're seeing this constant tread of people talking about the protests rather than protesters talking about the protests. It then goes on to give what has to become a mainstay in reporting of the far right in Ireland detailed lists of people involved in various political activities ranging from the national party to the irish freedom party to individuals with different interests and some of these people yes are fair right some i wouldn't say would be fair right by most conceptions of the term there have been multiple of these of these types of articles in irish media over the last while and what i think they all kind of do is they give immense amounts of detail which might make you think that the person knows what they're talking about, but gives no attempt to contextualize or explain how these people link together. And anytime they they tend to try and do so, not in this article, but in this, should we say, genre of articles, it kind of rapidly becomes apparent that this person doesn't really understand how these groups link together or, or where they are or the, the culture of these groups. They don't really understand the people they're talking about. It'd be kind of like if you asked someone a question about, let's say, a historical affair, like the uh, the conquests of Alexander, and they were able to tell you the name of his horse, but couldn't tell you the impact of any of his conquests, or what it meant for Macedonia, or any of that information. But they were very familiar with trivia. That's kind of the feeling you get off a lot of this thing. These are people who've detailed information about unimportant affairs and don't understand any of the overarching um, any of the overarching themes of it. Now, it's entirely possible that I might be being unfair on this because I'm a bit salty at um, Pyrrhus. Because Pyrrhus, uh, Grip recently put up a, an editorial which dealt with the idea that um, the, the quote, Ireland is full, and Pyrrhus, in response to it, said that uh, the editors of Grip were hate-filled, ethno-fascist, nativists, and that we stood for division, violence, and racism. The point of that editorial, I'll link that below as well, just in case people are interested. The point of that editorial, I think it was it was headlined something like Ireland's migrant policy is insanity and must stop was largely that our population growth, which is largely driven by um immigration, has outpaced a lot of the ability to build infrastructure. And for the the uh, for people to be educated, to receive medical care, housing, all of those things. And a part of it was about the phrase Ireland is full, which is something I think the journal have debunked it. I think it's been heavily worked on. And we were making the point that because the common response to it was that to look at... um ireland's population density and say obviously we could take more people so we made sure to make the point that the question is not population density the question is how much can your infrastructure allow for and where should that be all i mean all in all it was a fairly mild editorial certainly not the edgiest thing that we've published but it uh it pissed a fair amount of people off but then again most of the people pissed off were people who really don't get pissed off enough and as we've as i've said before the most important part of journalism is afflicting the comfortable that joke doesn't really work without michael here because where he here he would ask me about when we will be comforting the afflicted and i would respond we'll get around to it eventually maybe i need a michael puppet maybe that would help the journal also threw their hat into the ring on the east wall uh saga with a fact check which had all the rigor expected of a journal fact check I think they're actually getting worse the last while whatever about the the findings of them when the journal fact check started years ago it was actually pretty solid there was a bit of an ideological slant on it but they were pretty contained by journalistic ethics and I would imagine the person who was working on it because i believe it was just one guy at the time was uh was pretty dedicated to actually giving a fairly full understanding didn't agree with everything they put out but you could at least see where it was coming from but it was detailed and You nearly wouldn't be surprised if you opened one up and there was just an index. Whereas this is just like a couple of paragraphs slapped together, no subdivision, and just not very good. The the journal article is debunked. Asylum seekers, not economic migrants, are being housed at the East Wall building. Now, this is in response to people claiming that the majority of asylum seekers in Ireland are actually economic migrants. And you might think, okay, well, how, how do you tell? How do you tell if an economic, or if an asylum seeker is an economic migrant? Because it would be basically impossible, because that is a crime of intent again. If you are coming to Ireland because you want a better standard of living, you are an economic migrant, and there's legal economic migration, and there's illegal. Economic migration. But how can you actually tell if the intent of someone is not to flee persecution, but rather to better their lives? Setting aside the fact that fleeing persecution to a country where you're not persecuted is going to better your life pretty much immediately. And the journal come up with what I would say is an ingenious way of doing this. So what they say is that these people Cannot be economic migrants because they have sought international protection. So they're not economic migrants because they are asylum seekers. Now that is either a politically useful definition. If you are an economic migrant but you cannot get into the country legally but you still want to do this where your status is in some way regularized it would make absolute sense to go through the asylum seeker uh, process if you thought you could come out of it successful to simply say that the fact that they have applied for asylum means they are not economic migrants is is not an argument but that is the journal's view that is that is what they think that obviously that is a you know it's debunked it's different Uh, I've noticed the journal, the journal were always pretty good with turning off comments on stories, but now they've just started to turn off comments on nearly everything, and I think part of the reason for that is, it used to be that they would only turn off comments on stories that were of particular interest to the journal, or which, in which they were making a particular political view, and they didn't want people to be able to go under it, and, um, you know, cause a fuss. That's my opinion of it, of course, the journal never came out and said this, you just have to Study what they were doing and try and guess, divine what they were actually doing. But now they just seem to be doing everything, probably because they were getting so heavily mocked by people uh, about doing it, because it was actually, by the end, it was pretty hilarious. Actually, in relation to COVID, something we haven't talked about for a long while, there was an interesting piece in the Irish Times today, and it was from the former Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Ronan Glynn. And the headline is that COVID policy opponents willfully misconstrued science, Glynn says. Uh, Apparently he was giving a talk on the need for greater acceptance of uncertainty in medicine and science and he's absolutely right that there needs to be a certain level of acceptance of uncertainty in medicine and science. I think this is the point at which I would make a reference to the cervical check crisis and how a lot of that was not actually a crisis but pretty much things just functioning as normal bar a couple of uh, outliers but I don't have Michael here to hold me back on that so I'll, I'll wait until he gets back. Glyn comes in, says the COVID-19 pandemic was an existential moment for the use and abuse of knowledge with complex issues often falsely framed as black and white. Critics of the government's policy willfully misconstrued science and tried to shut down debate with oversimplifications. Now, to a degree, he's right. People who disagreed with the government, there were a certain amount of them at any one time who took an overly simplistic view. The problem here is that Glynn, at least from how it's reported in the Irish Times, is presenting that as very much a we were right and we were knowledgeable and we never tried to oversimplify things or misconstrue science but our opponents did. Whereas the simple truth of the matter is that both sides of that debate were pretty open to messing around with science, to presenting things in their own best way. Which is not to say that Both were equally right. You can be both right and absolutely happy to oversimplify things and misconstrue science to people. And it's not really the fault of Covid either. There's a great joke that science does not move ahead at great idea by great idea, but rather great funeral by great funeral, which is to say the periods where you see the most rapid development of new theories and the most rapid adoption of new theories in various scientific disciplines is the moment when the people who uh, came up with the last great idea die. Because when they die, and their adherents die, it becomes a lot easier to get acceptance. And that's just because of the way people work. If you have scientific figures who have particular views and have a lot of prestige and have people who follow them, well then people are highly unlikely to go against their work because of the social consequences of doing so and the general social pressure. And a lot of the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of the directives that came out, a lot of the points at which different things were done, We're not done because the science changed or the science became better or anything like that. They were done because other people started to do those things. And therefore, it became more acceptable for us to do those things. And in some cases, it appeared that there was a degree of pressure on us to do those things. And there's a couple of things that come to mind here. The first is obviously the antigen testing. Our handling of antigen testing was farcical. Uh, Our approach to it, the things that were coming out from the Irish government particularly from the people handling um COVID-19 in the civil service as well were largely nonsensical but there was enough social cover that they could do them because a lot of other people also hadn't accepted antigen testing and when other countries started to accept it and when other countries started to do other things we slowly started to do those things as well the Other one. And I bring this up because it happened very early and it related to Italian uh, sports fans coming to Ireland. And I remember I and Michael were saying that it would make absolute sense to stop the sporting event because this was from an area of Italy where COVID appeared to be coming out. And this was at the very start when people knew very little that Prudence would say, cancel the sport event, ban those people from coming here. And Pascal Donahue came out and said, well, we couldn't do that um, because how would we like if. The Italian government banned some of our people from going over to Italy. And you did have to think that is the reasoning of a child. We won't do this because what would you think if it was done to you? I suppose there's a certain Kantian logic to it. But you would think most adult countries, if you said we're going to do this, because there appears to be an outbreak of a lethal disease, which we know very little about, and therefore it seems prudent not to do this, so that we can control the rate of infection in Ireland until we figure out what the hell is happening. And I just wonder if um, willfully allowing COVID infections to spread into the country at that point, when we knew it was lethal, we didn't know how lethal, and we had terrible news coming out of Italy about the number of deaths, whether or not allowing that so that no one would feel bad about each other and we wouldn't have to cancel a sporting event, whether or not that might have been a um, willful misconstruction of science or the usage of oversimplification to shut down debates, Or just general bad ideas, which of course we can never admit were bad. He then goes on to talk about, by the way, that the the opponents who were willing to simplify and misconstrue science, that they were acting in a way that had the potential to create doubt and amplify uncertainty. To which I would point to the government's handling of whether or not masks did anything, which went from masks will do nothing, to masks will kill you, to you are now wearing a mask everywhere, including in scenarios where it didn't really make a lot of sense. And there was always a constant, well, the science has changed, but never really an explanation of how the science had changed. You just tell people this is what's happening. And Glynn very correctly says that simplification and um, other methods were used to shut down debate and to oversimplify really complex issues. And I've got to agree with him, but I would wonder if he would accept how much of that came from the government and the government not explaining things to people and just telling them things out of what seemed to be nearly a fear that if things were explained to people, people, might go, might even think that's right. So you just tell them what to do, and people are scared, so they'll do it. I mean, I wouldn't, and I'd be curious if listeners would, I wouldn't have seen the response of the government as in any way collaborative or explanatory. It was just, you're doing this, and it doesn't matter. And if you don't do this, you'll be punished. That actually reminds me of um, where I was talking earlier, of the media having trouble interviewing people. There were a couple of instances during COVID where pastors, it was always Protestant, um, clergy it was never um it was never catholic that i saw where had issues with police and there were a couple of instances in which evangelical pastors had pretty bad experiences with police there was one incident in which a protestant pastor was physically uh, removed from their um not church let's just say congregation they're physically removed from their congregation because i cannot remember what evangelicals call their um Their meeting places. Or maybe they are churches. And we reported it. I think we were the only people who reported it. But there was a particular Irish Times journalist who wanted to report it. And the problem there, of course, was that none of these people would talk to an Irish Times journalist. Because much like the protesters in Eastwall at the minute, they don't trust Irish Times protesters, uh, reporters. And given that the Irish Times' religious correspondent is Patsy McGarry... I can kind of get why you wouldn't think these are people who are friendly to me. Although, no, that's unfair. Sometimes this is presented as um, these people won't talk to media because they want media that supports them. That's not generally been my experience. These are people who want media that is fair to them and represents them largely truthfully without trying to put too much of a spin on it. That's that's it more than they want the media to like them. But anyway, I, I was able eventually to... Um, convince some of the religious people that they should talk to this guy in the Irish Times on the basis that he's you know, a decent guy and also that at some point you've got to try and get these stories into the mainstream media because they weren't being reported I mean, there was video of this as well, so I kind of figured, okay, you know, this, this will run. I believe that was actually killed in editorial uh, for whatever reason. That happened a couple of times during COVID, primarily with the ISAG stuff. We gave enough information about that to various outlets to confirm it, and those outlets would generally come back and say, yeah, we think this is a story. And then what would happen is it would go up to editorial and it would be killed off. Um, usually there would be no reason given. In one particular instance in which I'm aware of, uh, because I was told directly, uh, the it was killed off internally because the media outlet in question, which you won't name because I was told this you know, in relative confidence, uh, didn't want to piss off the HSE. And it was felt that Isaac had quite extensive links to the HSE and that by publishing this and embarrassing ISAG, you would run the risk that the HSE or the Department of Health uh, might stop supporting the publication. Because if we remember, at the start of the pandemic, and the pandemic overall was actually pretty good for newspapers, because by you know, the second year of the pandemic, People were just reading so much news just to keep up with it. And not just the second year, I suppose, truly, the entire thing. But the very start, advertisers collapsed. And most media outlets are are dependent upon advertisers. So the government stepped in and started running substantial amounts of ads. Uh, Now, they weren't explicitly designed as state support for media, but that was how they functioned. And when you look at these ads, when you look at the amount of money that went in and when the ads started and when they stopped... The government were running ads that absolutely did not need to be run anymore, like two years in telling people to be careful of basic things which people have been uh, told about for two years. But it enabled them to give a massive amount of money to the media and the media were not going to, um, or at least in this particular instance, the media were not going to risk that advertising revenue to publish a story that they thought could be embarrassing. I can never quite figure out why they thought it would be embarrassing, or why the Department of Health or the HSE would take such umbrage with it, because yes, ISAC had a lot of doctors in it, and they obviously had links to the Department of Health and the HSE, but I wouldn't have thought they were strong enough to actually cause a strong response if media had reported on them. But I suppose that's the interesting thing about uh, things that um, that freeze speech, whether it's you know, hate speech laws or whether it's anything else. Oftentimes, you don't actually need to do anything and the risk of anything happening to you can be quite small. It's the fear that it could happen to you and that the consequences could be very damaging, that will lead to you not doing it. Even in instances where you know, the HSE and the Department of Health might not have given a shit, just might not have cared at all, but it was what it was. And I suppose we'll close uh, just by going through the polls very briefly. We have, uh, that is, the political polls, not the not the residents of Poland. Uh, Sinn Féin, 34. Finnegale 23, plus 2. Finnefall 17. The Social Democrats, 5, plus 1. Ain two, 4%. Labour, 3 solidarity people for profit three minus two green party three independence and others nine minus one i suppose the most interesting one there is that um ain't are on four percent also quite interesting that the the social democrats are on five i mean that's primarily interesting because you've got you know your labor your solidarity and your green party all below them so ain't on four percent that's actually the same as the last ireland thinks poll which is Probably going to be quite motivating for Aintu. Sometimes you'll spike up a bit, but to stay there and stay static for a while, it will be interesting when the next election comes up, if they're going to repeat the mistake they made last time of not running enough candidates. But at 4%, you could be looking at a couple of TDs. Really depending how strong you are in certain regions, and if that's concentrated in particular areas. Labour Party, Green Party down at 3, no change. Always hard to tell how the Green Party feels about those kind of things, because they seem quite happy to be devastated, not decimated, but devastated, and then build up again, go into government, get enough of their policy uh, choices in to have an impact, be devastated again, and then just repeat the cycle. Labour Party on 3% is interesting, and does explain rumours I've been hearing that Alan Kelly is not going to run again. I mean, partially because you've, you know, he's lost the leadership, that's a bit of a kick in the teeth, but also 3%, it's the Havana bounce. No change in Sinn Féin, doesn't show any fall unlike some of the other polls, which is interesting, and finnegale at 20 23% plus two. Decent for them. Finifal are the interesting one. You'd think with Mihal Martin kind of coming up to the changeover, there would be some movement there just because it gets people thinking about you. But no, they remain on a glorious 17%. The second interesting poll, so that was a um that was an Ireland Thinks poll in the Sunday Independent. There is another interesting poll that came out from the Irish Times, which was looking at it was particularly interested in the, the North and uh, referendum on unifying with the Republic of Ireland. I was quite quite interesting because one of the questions they asked was if there was a referendum asking people whether they want Northern Ireland to remain in the UK or to unify with the Republic how would you vote in that referendum and taking only Northern Irish voters because the poll also asked voters from the Republic of Ireland 23% of people said they were unsure and wouldn't vote 27% of people said they would vote for reunification with Ireland and 50% said they would stay in the UK or they would vote to stay in the UK and I haven't had time to go and look at other polling on this issue Done in the region, but I would not have expected fifty percent to say they would stay in the UK. Nor would I have expected twenty-three percent to say that they're unsure. I suppose part of that might be that, and I'd say this is probably the way a lot of people in the Republic of Ireland think. With it, they there tends to be a thought that Northern Ireland is sort of a, a a fairly a fairly um you know an entity with a fairly limited lifespan. That eventually it will come back to Ireland, and it's just a method you just have to wait for it, and that when it unifies, Ireland will be a complete country and things will change and we'll have a glorious future ahead of us. All that sort of stuff. Well, it appears a significant amount of people in Northern Ireland don't agree. It does also open up the specter that Sinn Féin gets into government in the South, that shortly thereafter a referendum is called, and a referendum is lost. And I'm not sure that's something that people in the Republic of Ireland really might understand as like an intellectual possibility, that it's possible to lose that referendum, but I think a lot of people don't actually, in a real sense, think it could ever happen. That given the choice, people in the North could actually say, no, we're fine with the UK and the NHS. Um, also some of the um there's been a, an increasing trend recently of the publication of reports about what would happen when Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland were they to combine into one country and what would be the economic impact. And I've seen in the last while, shall we say, some um, optimism in that. I mean, I saw a report, one of the recent reports, which it was talking about the cost of absorbing the North into the Republic. It was saying, basically, well, obviously the English will continue to pay for this list of things, one of which I think was pensions. And there was a sort of, you might get... Them on a legal technicality, on the pensions, although they try and get out of it as much as possible. But why would you think the English are going to pay for anything? Well, the British, I suppose, more exactly. There are certain things they might pay for, but the sort of broad scale will just prop this country up with massive amounts of money, which is the current approach to it. Why would you do that if it's not part of your country? I don't know. I think people have just assumed this is the way it's going to be I won't be taking follow on questions at this time I mean I'm not going to talk about I'm not going to talk about this great length because I know very little about the north Uh, and so try and avoid talking about it to the greatest extent possible which frankly I think is an approach more people should take because because it seems to be just a widespread assumption that the north is just Ireland but just you know to the north but then you look at things like Arlene Foster and Arlene Foster uh, the IRA shoot her father try and kill him fail the IRA bomb a bus she's on you don't really have that sort of thing in the South. So one would imagine that the violence on its own has left a fairly definite cultural mark on certain people and on certain politicians. And I, mean, I remember seeing a while ago people mocking Arlene Foster because she was offended by something about the IRA. And in the South that would be a fairly sensible thing to do because because there's not that history of violence and it could just be someone being oversensitive. Where will you live in a part of the world where they may kill your father or at least try and kill your father? Well that probably changes your relationship to them and to people seeking to promote them or glorify them anyway we won't solve the northern irish crisis today no matter how much we try i think we will leave it at that michael as i said michael should be back next week provided he is uh you know finished living his life and we will see you then all the best